in a scene from the sitcom Jerry, or Seinfeld. Jerry and George, they're in their booth at the corner diner that they always are in when up comes Jerry's dentist, Tim Watley. And Jerry asks him, what's up? And, and his dentist says, I'll tell you what's up. I'm a Jew. And Jerry, who's Jewish, is a little taken back by that. And he says, excuse me? And, and he repeats, I'm a Jew. I just finished converting two days ago. And so Jerry, again, he's Jewish. He's, he responds, oh, well, welcome aboard. And, and then his dentist reminds him. He has an appointment with him the next day. Uh, and they continue talking. And then Tim proceeds, this, his dentist proceeds to, to joke about the Jewish workout he just had, which amounted to just sitting in the sauna which is incredibly derogatory. I mean, that's not a, a very nice thing to say. But what are they going to do? This person says they just converted to Judaism, so they just kind of smile and, and let it go. But it doesn't sit well with Jerry because after just two days, he's telling Jewish jokes. And so the next day, Jerry has this appointment. He goes in, and, and Tim, once again, starts telling Jewish jokes. And <clears throat> Jerry kind of stops him and says, do you really think you should be telling that? joke do you really think you should be saying that and and tim kind of just responds by well why why not i'm jewish remember so jerry doesn't do anything more he just kind of lets it go until he hears watley also tell a catholic joke because he feels he can still do that because he was formerly catholic so he can take a jab at at catholics he tells a joke about the pope and that's when Jerry decides to take action, so he goes to Tim's former Catholic church, goes into the confessional to talk to Jerry's priest, to tell him that he thinks that Jerry has converted purely for the jokes. And when the priest asks him, is this offensive to you as a Jewish person, Jerry says, no, it offends me as a comedian. He's upset over this choice. But, I mean, obviously, Tim thinks that part of the benefits to being, becoming Jewish, are that you can say derogatory things now about Jewish people. That was something that he wrongly thought. Now, there certainly are benefits to joining a group, but there are very often questions people have about the sincerity of someone joining a group, why they're doing it, if they're just doing it for the benefits. I mean, here's, here's another example of that. Around the time where people begin to go to Southern Baptist seminaries, there's a lot of Southern Baptist conversions. Because you've got to understand, if you are a part of a Southern Baptist church, you get half off the tuition when you go to a Southern Baptist seminary. You can understand the incentive for people to join the church in order to go to that particular seminary. So there are lots of ideas about benefits you can have. And sometimes you can be wrong about the benefits. Again, like Tim Watley was wrong about assuming that he can now just say derogatory things about Jewish people because he had become Jewish in his, his mind. So there are benefits, and, and yet there are confusion about benefits. And Paul's going to actually address the confusion over certain benefits to Judaism in the passage that we're looking at this morning. One of the perceived benefits of being Jewish in Paul's day in the first century was that you automatically had eternal life. Jewish person believed that by being a part of the old covenant, you would be rescued from God's end time judgment. That's how one rabbi put it. In the hereafter, 
Abraham will sit at the entrance to Gehenna and permit no circumcised Israelite to descend therein. Abraham's pictured as sitting at the gates of hell, rescuing even the sinful Jewish people merely because they belong to God's people by means of this covenant with Abraham's descendants at Sinai. So this is what was believed in Paul's day. In the New City Catechism, it's a good catechism, one that we're, we're teaching our kids, the first question is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is that we are not our own, but belong to God. And that, that is a great hope. We can have confidence. We can expect this salvation on the basis of the fact that we have a relationship with God, that we belong to him. But on what basis do we belong to God? That's the issue. That's the question that Paul's answering this morning. What group can have confidence that they belong to God, that they will will experience in the end God's salvation? So that's what we're looking at in Romans 2. You can turn there. Romans 2, we'll start in verse 17 and we'll go to the end of the chapter. And again, if you're looking at the Bible there in in your pew, it is on page 884. Romans 2, starting in verse 17. So Jewish people, again, they had this hope in God that because they belonged to him, they would escape this wrathful judgment in the end. And Paul's addressing that because he has a firm conviction. He believes thoroughly that the only way to be right with God is by faith in Jesus. So he's addressing this assumption. Remember, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah who's also Lord of all the nations. So this is the the need Paul's trying to present, not just for for non-Jewish people, but that Jewish people have a need for Jesus. And that's what he's been trying to establish now in chapter 2, just like he did for everyone else in chapter 1. So here in chapter 2, Paul evaluates this hope that God's old covenant people had. And he's going to do that in three ways. He's going to evaluate them by looking at the privileges of God's people, the assessment of God's people, and the reality of God's people. So he's going to look at the privileges, assessments, and reality of God's people. And this is not just a message for a first century Jewish person. This is important for us. It's important for us to understand because something radical happened when Jesus came. Something transformative. It was a turning point in history. But the nation of Israel as a whole didn't recognize this epic-changing event. They missed their own Messiah. And so what they did is many of them tried to continue to have a relationship with God through the Old Covenant. The Messiah had come. He was, he was bringing about the New Covenant. And so what these unbelieving Jewish people were doing was trying to have a relationship with God in a way that no longer was appropriate. And, and they also, in doing that, in the way that they rejected their Messiah, they were also thinking about themselves incorrectly, and they were actually using God's old covenant incorrectly. And so Paul's correcting that. He's correcting their misuse of this covenant that God had made with them. And the reality is, in the church, the same mistake, the, mis- the same confusion, the same perversion can happen. That Those who profess to be Christians can, can treat their relationship with God in the same way 
that these first century Jewish people were treating their relationship with God and understanding the way that they belong to God. So we need to pay attention because we can be guilty of thinking about ourselves as belonging to God in the same way that the Jewish person Paul's imagining that he's talking to would think that he belonged to God. So, in these first four verses of this section, verses 17 to 20, Paul's going to give us his first evaluation of this hope that these Old Covenant people have. And it's looking at the privileges of God's people. So, he spells out in these verses five privileges, starting in verse 17. He says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent. Those really are, those five clauses, they're they're expressions of genuine privileges that people had under the old covenant. And the first one he mentions is being called a Jew. And the terminology of a Jew, that was something that developed. I mean, you see in the Old Testament, the God's people are referred to as Israelites, or they are referred to as the people of Judah. But This was used mostly by foreigners. The term Jew was mostly used by outsiders referring to the people who lived in Judea. And the name just stuck. So by this point, as as in the first century, a Jewish person willingly referred to themselves as a Jew. And that name to them meant that they belonged to God's old covenant people. That's what they understood that name to mean. And, And this, the reality is that being a Jew, having that membership in the Old Covenant people, there were benefits to that. But Paul's now evaluating what were the benefits? What was the significance of that? And you can tell that this is the focus of the entire section because he brings up this title, Jew, at the beginning in verse 17 here, and then at the end in verses 28 and 29. He's, he's evaluating what is this covenant status? What, what are the benefits to that? But there are benefits, and so Paul mentions that, and then he mentions this, this group really did rely on the law. I mean, they, their relationship with God was delineated by the law. The law is an expression of, of the stipulations in that covenant. So they were resting their confidence in their relationship with God on the law. And in that, this third privilege is mentioned, that their boast is in God. Now, You know, boasting can have negative connotations, but it doesn't have to. In fact, God commanded his people to boast in him. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So in their relationship with God, they were right to boast in God. They were looking to him. This relationship, again, it's focused on God's instructions in the law. And because of that, this Jewish person really could know his will. That is God's will. And that's what Paul mentions next. Now, when we talk about God's will, we often use it in a different way than the Bible uses it. We talk about discerning God's will for specific decisions that we need to make. And and it's true. We do need to discern how to apply God's will to our lives. And the Bible does talk about that. But it doesn't use the idea of God's will to talk about which car you should buy or which house you should buy or which person you should marry. That's not the way the Bible 
talks about God's will. Instead, God gives us explicit statements of his will in the Bible. And that's what Paul's talking about here. This is God's will as it's seen in his law. And then on that basis, they were able to approve what is excellent. They were able to take God's special revelation. They were able to understand what would be excellent for this or that circumstance. That's what Paul is getting at. And I know that he's getting at that when he says this uh, approving what is excellent or knowing God's will, that it has to do with the law because that's how he ends verse 18. If you look at that, he says that this Jewish person is able to know God's will and approve or determine what's excellent because you are instructed from the law. So these are all the privileges of being a part of God's old covenant people. You have the law. You have this relationship with God. But then he goes on to verse 19 to talk about some conclusions that people would draw from that. And they're not completely wrong there, but... He begins in verse 19, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, in, in Isaiah 42, God describes his servant in this exact way. So in Isaiah 42, verses uh, 6 and 7, it describes the servant of the Lord as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Now, when we hear the servant of the Lord, we rightly think of the Messiah. But understand that in Isaiah, the identity of the servant's a little bit ambiguous. In fact, at one point, Cyrus is described as the servant of the Lord. And there's another place where it seems very clear that Israel is being described as a servant of the Lord. So it's not, it's not strange for a Jewish person to look at those texts and see their role described there. All these roles, all these designations here in verses 18, or sorry, verses 19 and 20, they're, they're virtually synonymous what they're describing here. They're all describing somebody who's instructing somebody else. So you have a guide. You have someone who's enlightening others. They're like a light, an instructor, a teacher. And, and then you have the objects of their instructions. Again, these are just kind of synonymous ideas of referring to the blind, those people who are without sight, that those are in darkness, they're without light, foolishness, they're without wisdom, children are without maturity. So he's just describing this idea in repeated ways. And again, it's based on the law. That's what the end of verse 20 says. He's able to do this because of their instruction in the law. So because of the law, they can act as guides to those who don't have the law. Like they would guide a blind person. They're blind to God's will. Because God's instruction is a lamp to our feet, like the psalm says, the person who has the law can then act as a light to those who, because they don't have the law, are in darkness. And they can be instructors, providing wisdom to those who don't have the wisdom of God's word and are thus foolish. And they can teach those who are, their spirituality is immature, it teach them with the instruction that brings maturity, which is, again, God's word. So these are ideas that are found in the Old Testament. And the way it's said, it almost sounds like he's talking, in some cases, to them teaching Gentiles, teaching non, uh, non-Jewish people, instructing them, instructing the blind, those who don't have the law, those who are in darkness. And that is found in the Old Testament, even though there is not a single command to Israel to go into all the world like we have in our Great Commission. There's no command to go out and 
and to do that. You do have a few prophets to talk about the nations. You have the exceptions like Jonah. But there's no command. There's no great commission to Israel to go out into all the world. Instead, you have these prophecies of the nations coming to Israel where they want to hear from God's law, like you have in Micah 4 or Isaiah 2. So the fact that Jewish people did have revelation from God, they had a privilege that the, the nations lacked. They did not have that revelation. These are, this is a legitimate privilege. And, and Paul had shown in the first chapter of Romans that non-Jewish people did have revelation. They had revelation through God's creation. Theologians refer to that as general revelation. But Israel had something even greater. They had special revelation. They had specific truths about God. So even people in the world, non-Jewish people, they had a knowledge of the truth about God. But Israel had an even greater, a more specific knowledge of the truth about God. So in chapter 1, Paul showed how non-Jewish people responded to the limited knowledge, the limited truth about God that they have. They rejected it. They knew God by what he has made, but they suppressed that truth. They even exchanged that truth for the lie of of idolatry and immorality. So now what Paul's doing is, after he's shown that non-Jewish people have rejected the knowledge and truth given to them, what have the Jewish people done with the knowledge and truth given to them? This even greater knowledge and truth. And that's what he's going on to show in this section. How did they respond to this even greater knowledge, this, this privilege of special revelation. It's not a question that they had it. The question is what they did with it. And so Paul then turns to a second evaluation. He's talked about the privileges. Now he looks at the assessment. You know, in school, you assess kids. You're trying to figure out how they've done with what you instructed them in. And, and the most obvious assessment is a test. But it doesn't have to be a test to assess kids. You're trying to figure out what they know. So, for example, if a, if a child's learning to identify different trees, and, and you can identify them by the leaves, well, a way to assess that is maybe to have them make a project. Take leaves and put them on some board and, and put the, the right identifications with them to help see, is this child understanding what we're, what we're teaching? Well, in the same way, Israel, Paul is giving them an assessment. He's saying, how have you done with your education? How have you done with what you learned? Only there's something else that's going on here because this, it wasn't just an individualistic assessment. Paul is assessing the group because that's the basis of their confidence. The Jewish person is not confident in themselves as an individual. Their confidence is based on the fact that they're a part of this group. So what Paul does here in his assessment is really, it's not focused on every individual Jewish person. He's just saying, how has the group done? Let's evaluate the group. Let's assess how they've done. And so that's what we see in verses 21 through 24, this second way that he is evaluating their hope in being a part of God's old covenant people. And he gives this assessment of God's people. So even though the person he's talking to is singular there's just one individual he imagines he's talking to he is focused again on the overall group and so he gives this he begins with this overall accusation through a rhetorical question he asks in verse 21 you then who teach others do you not teach yourself in in greek the assumed answer is no you don't teach yourself and so 
he's, again, taking that privilege that he just said. You're a teacher. You're an instructor. You have the law. But as you're instructing others, have you actually taken the time to instruct yourself? And again, he's saying, no, you haven't. And then he goes on to explain what he means with three more questions. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? And again, here the rhetorical answer is yes. In each case, yes, you do steal and commit adultery and rob temples. Now, every single individual Jewish person had not done those things. That's not Paul's point. Again, he's just mounting this evidence to say, is this the group that you really want to put your, your faith in? You want to depend on? You want to hope in? So there were people, well-known leaders, who were well-known for their infidelity. We can imagine that there were probably well-known thefts perpetrated by Jewish people. There was even evidence of Jewish people taking idols that were originally in other temples, pagan temples, and selling them for money. And you can understand why they might think that they could get away with this because they didn't believe the idols were really gods, so why not make a buck off of it? But what he says is the Bible teaches us, or the, the law taught them to abhor idols and idolatry. And if you abhor idols, then you obviously wouldn't want to redistribute them, even if it was making some money. And so Paul then summarizes this point in verse 23. He says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. He's like, you're so excited about having the law, and yet what you've done in your association with God through that law is you've dishonored God. You haven't actually brought God honor because you haven't obeyed as a group. And then he adds some evidence in verse 24. Now, some Bibles kind of present verse 24, actually many and most, present it as a quote. I don't think it's a quote. Um, most of the modern translations take as it is written and put it at the, at the beginning. Uh, some of the older translations don't do that. The NASB doesn't do that. It's one of the only cases if not the only case where Paul or anybody puts as it is written at the end. And what I say that to mean he's not, you might have a cross-reference say this goes to Isaiah 52. I don't think he's pointing to Isaiah 52. I think he's pointing generally to passages in the Old Testament that speak to this. And I actually think Exodus, or sorry, Ezekiel is, is a better example of what Paul's getting at here. He, in, in Ezekiel, God addressed his people after they already been kicked out of the land after the exile. And he says in Ezekiel 36 and verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. They had been kicked out of the land for disobeying God. And what happened when they went to these other lands is they continued to make God look bad. They continued to disobey. They continued to, to defame his name, to blaspheme his name. <clears throat> and so that's what Paul's saying here when he says, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. He's referring back to what had been said even in Ezekiel, but he's saying this is presently the case. Even all the way back to Ezekiel and now, this is what's been happening. So what he's saying is, this is the group that you want to hang your hopes on. Is that what you're saying? You want to belong to this group. 
who present themselves as teachers of the law, but they don't teach themselves. Members of this covenant people are known for stealing and committing adultery and even robbing temples. And that's been the case for a long time. So you think belonging to this group is going to help you in the end when you face God. He's saying it's not going to help you. God's old covenant people as a whole, they failed their assessment. They were not known for their holiness. If you, if you surveyed the nations, they would not have said, yeah, Jewish people are holy people. They would have looked at those blights on their record, those big failures in the leadership or those well-known sins that God's people had shown. So Paul then moves from that assessment to the last part of his evaluation. The last way he evaluates, again, this hope that these old covenant people had is by looking at the reality of God's people. Now, I'm sure you've used a word wrong before. Uh, I've done it. I'm sure you've caught me doing it. Hopefully, I haven't used the same word repeatedly wrong. But that does happen, right? I'm reminded of that, that scene in the movie, uh, The Princess Bride, which I haven't mentioned lately. So it's okay for me to mention it again. But there's a scene where Vizzini and, and his cohort, they, they jumped on the back of their giant. His name's Fezzik. And, and they, they want him to rush up, scale this wall as fast as they can. And they're trying to get away from this man in black who's inconceivably been able to follow them uh, in the middle of the night when nobody could have known the fact that they had just kidnapped the princess. So they're scaling this wall and they look down and they see that the man in black is scaling it faster than their, their massively strong giant, which again, Vecini finds inconceivable. And they get to the top and, and Vecini quickly starts to cut the rope that they've been scaling this cliff wall on so that the man in black will plummet to the ground. But that's not what happens. When he looks down the cliff, this man in black, is, he's still alive and he's hanging on. And Vecini says, he didn't fall? Inconceivable. And that's when Inigos kind of confronts him and says, you, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's saying, you keep using that word. You refer to yourself as Jewish. You keep using this covenant relationship. I don't think it means what you think it means. So, Again, we need to keep in mind that what Paul's referring to here, he's not looking back to the old covenant era before Christ. He's responding to a Jewish person now who has seen the Messiah, that Paul's saying, this is the Messiah, this is Jesus, the one ushering in the new covenant, and that Jewish person has said, no, I'm rejecting that Messiah. That's who he's talking to here. That person who's trying to keep using the old covenant now that the Messiah has come. The one who was going to bring in the new covenant. They've ignored that. So they're trying to use the relationship they had with God under the old covenant that was superseded. And Paul's saying that you can't do that. That's what he's interacting with here. He's not saying that there were no faithful Jewish people prior to Christ's coming who did demonstrate their faith in God through the Old Covenant. In fact, he's going to point out that that was the case, that there were Old Testament saints, but that they belonged to God the same way that New Covenant saints belonged to God, by faith. So in these circumstances, 
In the first century, now that Christ has come, Paul says in verse 25, circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And the value he's talking about there is we call eschatological. It's end times value. He's saying that your circumcision is something that has value for saving you if you obey the law. And again, what we've seen in the past chapter is he means ongoing, continuous obedience, or we could say perfect obedience. Now, every Jewish person knew that if you broke the law, you were cut off from your people. I mean, God had listed plenty of things. Now, if you were uncircumcised, you were not a part of the people. You were cut off from the people of God. It was that identity, that... that, uh, identifying feature of circumcision that was the first way that you were connected to the people of God. And if a person wasn't circumcised, they were cut off from the people of God. That is what Genesis 17, 14 says. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. But then the law also listed numerous other ways that you could be cut off from God's people by breaking the covenant. And that's what Paul's talking about here. See, under, under this new era, if you follow the, the old covenant rules, there's no longer any way to deal with your sin. Those sacrifices no longer pointed forward because Christ had come. You couldn't have faith in those sacrifices for forgiveness. There was only Christ. So in this situation, he's saying, look, You and your sin puts you outside of the covenant community. It cuts you off from God's people. Even if you have the markers, even if you're circumcised, your sin cuts you off from the people. And then he goes on to make a logical statement in in reverse. In verse 26, he says, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Remember why God established the covenant with his people and what he says about it. If you belong to God's people, you are required to be holy. You will be holy for I am holy. That's the goal. The goal of of God for his people was that they would be holy. So imagine a person who doesn't have that identifying feature that says that they're a part of the people, that circumcision, but he's doing the goal of the whole relationship. He's demonstrating holy behavior. Just as God is holy, would not that holy behavior be a demonstration that they really do belong to God's people apart from being circumcised? If they're doing the goal, if they're doing the whole point to this thing, then that supersedes that entrance picture, the the circumcision. It trumps the physical marker. And so... Paul takes it a step further. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. They have these distinctions between those who are in and those who are out. What Paul does here is he starts to make a distinction of his own between what is external and what's internal. And then he also uses this future tense verb to say he's talking about the end time judgment. If you, if you want to think about the benefits, the value of this old covenant relationship, the value is going to be seen in the end. Now, 
He's not, again, he's not really interested in saying how this can happen, but he wants to demonstrate that the person who has no external indications of being a part of God's people, they don't have the written, they don't have the written code, they don't have circumcision, but they carry out the end for which that instruction was given, that person is going to condemn the Jewish person that has everything but doesn't do what it was intended to do. He's not saying that they're going to act as judge. He's saying that their life as one who actually does carry out the end for which the law was given, live a holy life, that person's life is going to be evidence that the Jewish person who has the law and is circumcised but does not obey it, that they deserve God's condemnation. That's what he's saying with that statement. And then what Paul does is he goes in to explain the significance of the old covenant. So this is kind of, we're not used to talking about circumcision, are we? Thankfully, there's not a lot of young folks in here because then they're going to ask. I know Chris mentioned before one time his child asking a question simply from the scripture reading. So I know that happened. But the reality is that these are Old Testament ideas, Old Covenant ideas that were common. And what Paul's trying to do is help this person understand what that relationship with God under the Old Covenant was all about. And that's what he, he goes on to explain here. He's basically saying, like Inigo, I don't think this terminology means what you think it means. You use, your, you use this word Jew to refer to yourself. But I don't think it means what you think it means. He even says that this person who by all external evidences was Jewish is not really Jewish. And he's not the only person to say this. Jesus says this in Revelation. Revelation 2.9 and Revelation 3.9, he refers to those who say that they are Jews and are not. Now that he's come, everything has changed. And, and Paul's explaining what this Jewish person has missed about the Old Covenant. It was always pointing to the new. The Old Covenant was always pointing forward. This external circumcision that they did was always pointing forward to internal circumcision. It was like a prophecy. The whole Old Covenant was like a prophecy. Pointing forward. The New Covenant was the fulfillment of that. And so now that Christ has come, now that the New Covenant was being, becoming a reality, the Old Covenant was no longer operative. That's what the writer of the Hebrews is saying when he says that the Old Covenant is obsolete. In Hebrews 8.13. So... Paul says in verses 28 and 29, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. Now, a Jewish person hearing this should not be surprised because from the very beginning of the covenant, God said Israel has a problem, and the way he referred to it was that they needed to circumcise their hearts they have this, this sign of their covenant through Abraham to circumcise all the males. But what they really needed was all of them to have circumcised hearts. That was Deuteronomy 10, 16 says. And God even promised in Deuteronomy 36 that he would do that. He says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. We mentioned, uh, I mentioned a passage in Ezekiel 36 where God said, you guys are going around and, and blaspheming my name. Well, right after that, God gave this promise in verse 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. These are the promises of the new covenant. So now that Christ has come, belonging to the people of God is no longer seen through these external things. Now the pictures that we're pointing forward are no longer in effect. Now it comes down to the reality. The shadows, the shadow of God's people has given way to the reality of God's people. The external circumcision has given way to internal circumcision. That's the fulfillment. The external law has given way to an internalized law by means of the indwelling spirit that you receive through Jesus. So the person who truly belongs to God's people, now that Christ has come, is the one who's been transformed by the spirit. Just like the old covenant promised would be the case. So in terms of evaluating whether you belong to God or not, everything has changed now that Christ has come. You cannot evaluate it based on those old covenant assessments, those old covenant measurements. The indication that you belong to God is not something external, it's internal. Something that the Spirit does. So again, the shadow of God's people has given way to the reality of God's people. The picture that you see in the Old Covenant is replaced with the fulfillment, the reality. So that's why resting your hopes on carrying out the Old Covenant is wrong. It's not good. It's taking the Old Covenant and using it for something it wasn't even meant for. It was pointing to Christ. Now, Christians can do the same thing. Now, some who profess to be Christians, we can take New Covenant realities, New Covenant teaching and instruction, and we can treat it the same way that this first century Jewish person was treating Old Covenant forms. They can treat baptism as though it were the same as circumcision. You hear that idea. Circumcision is not fulfilled in baptism. It's fulfilled in new birth. In the circumcision of the heart. But you can treat the same kind of external factor of bringing somebody in and saying that is what makes you a part of the community. That baptism. And that's just kind of the way we work. We like tangible things. We like to see things. So it's very natural for us to move away from what the Bible talks about in the New Testament in terms of fulfillment and move back towards relying on external things because it's easier. It's easier to check off those boxes. So people even take the Lord's Supper and they reimagine it as though this is like an old, old covenant sacrifice. And this is the means by which you belong to God. They're doing the same thing the old covenant person was doing now that Christ has come. Misusing it and missing Christ. And the worst part of it is, is they're doing it in Jesus' name. And instead of understanding that these things point to Christ, they're putting their faith and their hope in the things themselves. 
So they're imagining that these things are external markers, just like those old covenant things were external markers. And that's what they base their hope on. So they're confident they're going to be accepted by God because they carried out the right of entry. R-I-T-E, right. They were baptized. They have confidence that they belong to God because of their baptism. Or they participate regularly in the Lord's Supper. So they're confident that they belong to God because they receive that. They're confident that they belong to this or that church. And so they belong to God. But they, they're confident really in their own activity. Instead of in Jesus who accomplished everything necessary so that we would belong to God and accomplished it for us. So when you answer the question, what is our only hope in life and death? And you answer with the right answer, that we are not our own but belong to God. It is vitally important that you understand what it means to belong to God, how you belong to God. The the Jewish person in the first century who had rejected Jesus but continued to try to follow the law and believed that that was the, the means of their acceptance before God. That's what we can do. That person was relying on themselves. That person that was doing the circumcision and trying to carry out the law, they were relying on themselves to be a part of or to continue to be the people of God and be accepted by God. They were relying on what they did And that happens today. People trust in belonging to the church, in baptism, in communion, in the external things, that in in their piety. They're reading their Bible. These are the things. I'm doing these things, and that shows that I belong to God by doing these external things. So do we believe baptism is important? Absolutely. God commanded us to do that. Jesus commanded us to do that. It's vitally important. Is is the Lord's Supper important? Again, absolutely. It's important. Christ commanded us to do this. Is church membership important? Absolutely. Again, there people bicker over the terminology but having an official relationship with Christ's body where you understand the people that you're responsible for and the leaders that you're responsible to and who they're responsible for, that is something that Jesus and his apostles set up. So it's vitally important for us to listen to Jesus. But it is a major mistake to move from following what Jesus says and to then rely on those things to be the basis of your hope that you belong to God. So if you're trusting in something external, if you're trusting in anything else for your hope that in the end you will escape God's wrath, if you're trusting in your baptism, your church membership, taking communion each week, reading your Bible, trying your best to follow God's rules, whatever it is, if you're trusting in that, what you need to do right now is to stop trusting in that, to acknowledge there's nothing you can do, nothing you can do to even maintain 
a right standing before God. That Jesus is the only thing, the only way for you to have right standing before God. And it has nothing to do with what you do. And you need to trust in what he's done. And then on the basis of that, we do all these other things that point to him. Because they point to him. Not to rely on them as evidence that we belong to God. Now, again, mentioned the Lord's Supper. It's part of what we do as a church. And it's part of what we do as a church family. That's true for every church. Well, I shouldn't say every church. Most churches recognize that this is a church family phenomenon. This is what we're doing. So it's not something that you do just so that you as an individual feel close to God. I know that's the way it more recently in our day has been interpreted. But the church is largely understood throughout the centuries that this is something that we do as a church, as a church family. The same way that we as a church affirm the faith of those that we bring in through baptism, as a church we're reaffirming the faith of those who take this communion with us. And for that reason, we need to have a relationship with the people who are taking communion with us. Now, we also, we do have an exception to that. We, we recognize that people visit. We recognize that, that there's transients in our society and there, there's people moving around and there's uh, temporary situations. And so we do make allowances for that, for those who participate with us that do belong to another church that normally they participate with. But that's what the exception is. So since this is a corporate reaffirmation of the faith of those in a local church, we ask two things, really. We ask that you only participate if you are a baptized believer and you are baptized at a church that believes the same gospel that we believe. And if you're a member of a church where you can regularly participate. And if that's not true, then we would ask you to, to not take, that you would pass it by. And if you have questions about that, I would encourage you to talk to me about it. I can, I can go into more depth, but have more time to go into more depth as to why those things are all connected. But that's what we'd ask you to do. Would the men please come forward to administer the Lord's Supper? While you, while you wait, I would encourage you to examine yourself. Give yourself an assessment. Are you tempted to trust in external things? Are you tempted to look to things like this, to taking to communion, as why you can know that, that the Father accepts you? Those are the things you need to repent of. Those are the things you need to say no to. Remember that this points to Christ, just as all the different things that we're doing are supposed to do. Point to Christ. So consider what Christ has done for you as you wait until I read scripture to eat and drink. Join me in a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you for doing what we could not do for ourselves. We thank you for doing that for us when we were enemies, when we, were, we had animosity for you. When there was nothing in us that would even draw you to us, that you were willing to 
to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to live perfectly, have that consistent, righteous behavior for, our, for the entirety of your life. And then when you didn't deserve to suffer, when you didn't deserve to experience that wrath, you willingly embraced it for the sake of us, for the sake of, of all who trust in you. And we want to thank you for that. And we want to acknowledge even today that, that what you have done is the sole basis for our confidence. That we can have confidence and we can approach you and we can approach the Father confidently, not because of anything in us, but, but solely because of you. Because of your grace towards us. So help us even now as we take communion to remember that. To remember what you directed us to when you were here. To remember you. To remember your death. To remember the significance that it has for us. And help us to rest our hopes entirely in that. Draw attention to those things that we are tempted to rest our hope in. To boast in. Help us to boast in you, that we know you. Help us to have our confidence and hope rest squarely on you. Amen.